0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process
1: in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Now joining me co-host today on the duty is Michael Hawley. How are you doing, Mike?
2: Great, it's the it's the one and only Michael Hawley. I think you're trying to say. Oh
1: right? it, well, there is one and only, and and of course, and his little dogs too. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, <laughs> they're having a rough time. Excuse that fun. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to <laughs> do it. You know, I'll send a couple over your way too. You can take care of all. Of them, <laughs> you know, save me the trouble. Um, well, so we've got another interesting guest. We're covering another uh, story of crime. So. um Let's see who we've we got on the on the docket here. We've got um, David Domini, and the book is called A Dark Room in Glitterball City, and it's Murders, Secrets, and Scandal in Old Louisville. Um, thank you for being here, David. Hi, thanks for having me on. What what got you onto the story to start with? Like, how did you find this uh, true crime? I live in Louisville,
0: Kentucky. I'm not uh, a native. I'm from Wisconsin originally. I moved to Louisville in the 90s to go to graduate school, and my idea was do my time and get out of town, but I never quite left. And so I've spent half my life there now. And uh, there's one part of town called Old Louisville, and it's known for its uh, wonderful Victorian mansion. Some say it's the largest Victorian neighborhood in the country. And in 1999, I bought a house, and uh, it was a large Victorian house with six bedrooms. I lived there uh, till 2008. Right before I moved in, the previous owner told me the house was haunted. I don't really believe in ghosts. I didn't really think much of it. But after I moved in, strange things started happening in the house. All the things she warned me about, in fact. And so that kind of got me into the spooky stuff in the neighborhood. And I'm still kind of a skeptic today, but I love ghost stories. And ghost stories are an interesting, you know, expression of the community's um, local lore and legends. There's a lot of um, real-life, you know, characters involved. And so I started writing books about the neighborhood. I started off with, like, spooky stories and things to kind of do my part to help, you know, promote the neighborhood. Well, after I moved out of my house in 2008, uh, there was a house nearby, just a couple blocks away, that I considered buying. It was much bigger than my previous house, which was only about 4,000 square feet. And that's kind of small for the neighborhood where I was. And um, it was the old Richard Robinson house. It was built around 1898. It had about 11 bedrooms, 10,000 square feet, and uh, it had like the original wine cellar from when the first family lives there in the basement, and so I got into my head, I wanted a, an old house with a wine cellar, so I um, I met the real estate agent. I went to look at the house, and it was just, it was a wreck. It needed a lot of work, so I, um, I decided against it, and I moved to where I currently live today, but two years later, I woke up one morning. I turned on the news, and as I was drinking my coffee, I looked up, and a familiar-looking house flashed across the screen, and it was the Richard Robinson house that I had considered buying two years before. And there were police out front. There was caution tape up in the front yard, and two guys were coming out of a door with a, a large container kind of jostled between them, and they were in hazmat suits. And I continued listening, and it turns out the guy... Uh, who lived there, and it turns out he was the guy who had the appointment with the real estate agent right after I did. He ended up buying the house and uh, moved there. Well, the night before, and uh, so this is the morning of June 18th, 2010, when I'm watching this on the news. And um, the previous night, police had been called to that residence because of a 911 call. And uh, the guy who owned the house, he uh, called 911 because he said his boyfriend was trying to break through the door and uh, come inside the bedroom where he was barricaded and kill him. And so the police responded and they, they arrested this other guy. And in the process of questioning the two parties, they began hearing grumblings about somebody knowing something where a body was buried. And uh, they didn't really take it seriously, but finally they heard something about something being down in the wine cellar. So the police went down, they started digging in the wine cellar and, uh, four feet below the surface of the earth, they dug out a blue Rubbermaid container, and in it were the remains of Jamie Carroll. Jamie, Jamie Carroll, male or female? It was uh, male. Okay. So it was, turns out, it was the guy's drug dealer, slash uh, sometimes boyfriend, slash well-known drag queen. And he had been killed a year before, and he had been buried in the dirt floor of the wine cellar all that time. And then the question was, who killed him and why? Well, both of the guys blamed each other, and uh, they both claimed to have been living in fear of the other for the previous uh, seven months. And three years later, we had the most scandalous murder trials we'd seen in this part of the country in a long time. A lot of people called it uh, the trial of he said, he said. Some called it the pink triangle murder. And I sat in on those trials. Uh, Being someone interested in the neighborhood and true crime, I had to sit in and see what it was all about. And it was fascinating to see the two guys on the stand and just find out more about their lives and what had led to this uh, terrible murder but what was really interesting is when the trials ended I began finding out more things about the house where the murder had taken place and it turns out it wasn't the first strange death associated with the house the woman uh, living there beforehand whose family had sold the house had been savagely attacked and beaten in the house so severely she died of her injuries uh, other people died there as well back in the twenties and thirties uh, there was a sanatorium a guy known uh, known as dr bandine was promising to cure people of cancer but he was kind of a, a quack he was promising to cure them of cancer and all these people were coming to him in hopes and and um, and in droves hoping to be cured but they weren't being cured they were dying and suffering under his care and he was ruined in the end uh, he was brought up on ethics charges he was rumored to have killed some of his patients outright but from that point forward the house kind of took on a reputation as being a you know, a sinister house, a destroyer of lives, and it seemed like every several years, whoever moved in, some kind of tragedy would befall the family, death in the family, financial ruin, and it kind of went on and on like that, uh, garnering the house kind of a reputation for being a, a creepy house, kind of a cursed house in the neighborhood, and uh, so it kind of had a spooky past, but it turns out uh, Joey and Jeffrey, the guys living in the house, who were arrested and charged with the murder of Jamie Carroll. Turns out they had a lot of other things going on in the house just besides a body in that basement. They had been arrested several months before in Chicago so when they were arrested for this murder they were out on bond for a big, um, what was supposed to be a federal trial in Chicago because they had been arrested with $54,000 in counterfeit money at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Chicago. It Turns out they were counterfeiting money up on the second floor. So they were counterfeiting. Supposedly one of them worked for the CIA. This is one of the bits of intrigue that came up during the trial. And he had worked as an assassin, killed 35 people for them. Every
2: sentence is kind of a stunning thing. Working for the CIA and killed 35 people, yeah. as in this person.
0: <laughs> yeah, it just, you couldn't make stuff up. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff was brought up, but what, you know, is real, really provable and stuff, that's kind of where the, the murky area starts. There's just so much, so many bizarre details to this case. But um, so they, they had this counterfeit money thing going on. Um, supposedly at a time there was a, a, a well-known S&M club down in the basement where the wine cellar was, so it kind of exposed Louisville's uh, quirky S&M pass. It turns out there's a, a whole uh, network of underground S&M clubs in the city, and I'm talking about literally underground s m clubs. Downtown at a place called Whiskey Row, uh, ten years or so ago, they were doing some renovation, putting a restaurant in one of the old distillery buildings, and below the sub basement or below the basement in a sub basement, they broke into a kind of a, a room that they didn't know about, it, and uh, it turned out to be one of several uh, S and M clubs that were all interconnected below this uh, this row of buildings down on what's called uh, Whiskey Row. And uh, turns out, yeah, Louisville had a pretty uh, buzzing S&M scene back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so the guys were supposedly connected to that. And uh, it's just a story you couldn't make up. You know, there's lots of neighborhood gossip and intrigue. And then there's the guys' lives, you know, while they were living in the house. There's the, the life of unfortunate Jamie Carroll. You know, he's the innocent victim in all this. And, um, yeah, just sitting through the trials, learning about, what happened, learning about the house in its previous lives, it was a way for me to kind of delve into the uh, soft underbelly of the city. Mm. And uh, like every community, every neighborhood, you know, there's there's uh, there's dirt. And there's yeah. uh, intrigue I th- and things. So. I,
1: I think Michael used to be part of that, that role. <laughs> <in the laughs> you know, uh, just don't tell the white. <laughs> no. Well, you know,
0: well the uh, funny thing is, I'm not going to, I mean, there's a well-known uh well, i don't know if he's a leader in the s n m community, but his name is Michael, actually,
1: oh really <laughs> there we go, yeah, there it is. I told yeah. you it goes <laughs> under the name silver fox
2: uh, that, that is true silver fox
1: yeah <laughs> well I, I just wonder but um following this kind of case and um sitting in and being involved and all that stuff, and because these are people that are still alive, they're around, they're your counter um. How did that affect you personally? Like, how does that get into you emotionally? Uh,
0: It was very stressful, and I had to take time off from writing the book just because it was getting at me, you know. You don't want to make people mad. And um, so I was always kind of concerned how people were reacting. For the most part, I had a lot of support. But um, there were people in the neighborhood, you know, who kind of appear in the book because they were critical. And it turns out um, – they were hypocritical in the end you know they had things to hide um but there was a point where uh i was waking up in the night with broken teeth i was grinding my teeth uh so bad and my jaws were locking because of the stress so i kind of took a break from it but that's kind of how my writing process is i don't you know I'm, i wish i was one of those writers that could sit down every day from 6 to 10 and you know they they're productive they get things done I'll go for weeks or months on end without writing and then I'll get back to my project because, you know, so much of writing is more than just the actual physical act of writing. It's letting the ideas germinate. And in my case, putrefy, you know, in my head, (laughs) you know, I get ideas and I daydream. And a lot of times I know kind of where a story is going, but I got to fill in the blanks. I need that downtime in between to do research and just get inspiration. So whenever I got to a point where it was kind of stressful and, Um, I need to take a break. I just put the story on the back burner and and work on something else. And then usually that would recharge me. But, I mean, there are people who criticize me uh, for writing. Whenever you write anything true, you know, you write about real-life characters. That's going to happen. But for the most part, people have been uh, pretty supportive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I've been through that similar um, Mm -hmm. sort of thing, doing uh, books like that, true crime. And, you know, you'll never please everyone. Yeah. There's there's always going to be someone that sees it a different way or wants to see it a different way or feels something different about the people you're writing about. So, mm-hmm. I think that's sort of um, and the stress and the biting of the teeth or grinding that's common. I do that all the time. Really? Yeah. yeah. And and I've done I've got 20 books out now. And yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I, I have almost no back teeth left. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. So as I was writing, the way I kind of resolved all this is I kind of took a memoristic approach to the book. So it's kind of my story. It's the story of the murder and the trials, but it's kind of my story, my journey as well. So I'm able to kind of filter things uh, through my perspective, and that kind of helped me deal with a lot of these things and hopefully alleviate um, you know, some of the, the resentment it might engender when the story's out there. Right,
1: right, and and in the community itself, the gay community. How is this book going to be received? Do you think, or how is it so far?
0: I think in the gay community, it's going to be fine. Um, it would be, you know, the broader the straight community where I might worry about that. But um, a lot, a lot of the people in the local gay community, they know, they knew these guys, and they were the ones that gave me interesting anecdotes about them, and. Louisville is kind of a city that embraces its quirky stuff, and uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have glitter ball city in the title. This is one of our lesser known nicknames here, but back in the you know seventies and eighties, at the height of the world's disco craze, guess where all the disco balls were coming from? (laughs) Louisville, Kentucky, and the company is still around today. It's called Omega National Products. It's a mirror company. Um, They're over uh, near Cave Hill Cemetery, which features prominently in the book. And back in the, the 70s and 80s, at the height of the disco craze, they had like a crew of 25 women who would crank them out by hand every day. They'd each make like 20 a day. Of those 25, there's only one left. Uh, her name's Yolanda Baker, and she's considered the reigning queen of disco balls. Uh, she doesn't. Yeah, that's her title. And uh, she doesn't make as many as she used to. She says that she makes 10 a week or so. That's pretty much a lot today because uh, by the – the 1990s, you know, China had overtaken with mass production, yeah. so Louisville doesn't make the most of them anymore. But they still have the reputation for um, making the best quality ones, and all the uh, all the iconic disco balls you know, like from TV and movies, those are Louisville disco balls. That's what John Travolta was dancing under in C- Fever a Studio before. That's what they had. Uh, a lot of people might remember Soul Train, that huge one that they said so that was. That was one of the most famous projects back in the day, but it's not surprising a Louisville company would have this tradition because it was a Kentuckian in 1917 who first patented something called the myriad reflector, and that that was the early the first patented version of a disco ball. So they've been making that for over 100 years here in Kentucky. So it's not surprising you know this Louisville company would have that tradition, and not surprising Louisvilleians would kind of embrace um, this uh, quirky uh, claim to fame, and they're actually. Uh, Right now the largest disco ball in the world is in England, I think, Isle of Wight. And uh, there's a campaign going on right now to raise enough money so they can build a disco ball twice as big as that one to kind of claim the world record uh, biggest disco ball here in Louisville. (laughs) Yeah, so um, like I said, the gay community pretty much embracing it. And one of the things about the book is because it was, you know, a gay angle it was a gay murder. It was gay uh, guys accused of killing it. Of course, right away, it became sensationalized, and they they zeroed in on the gay part mm-hmm. and you know you know typical gay you know all the typical you know stereotypical things you'd expect to hear from ignorant people. but so what I did as I was writing the book, I tried to include a lot of other local uh, cases involving murder or terrible crimes where it wasn't gay stuff, where it was straight stuff to try to put things in perspective. Um, so I hope, uh, when people read it, I think they'll try to, I think they'll get what I'm trying to do, which is put things in perspective. And, um, you know, I try to, I try to, you know, let people know that what it's like being part of the community and just, um, you know what it is to deal with that intolerance in a situation like this, and uh, you know,
1: in the well, broader yeah. uh,
0: scheme of things, just you know, show this is one terrible crime in a in a whole world of terrible crimes.
1: Well, and that's all you can do. Um, I I, I kind of see, I kind of see how it can get, get mixed by the communities depending on how they see it. I, I, some some mm-hmm. people don't like because I, I, I've been I've got this for a few years. Some people don't like me presenting cases that involve gay people because it makes the gay community look bad mm-hmm. is kind of the comment I get. And I think, well, I, I, personally, I think it makes us look more like the strike community, more real, mm-hmm. right, rather than separate. Yeah. We, do, we have the same things everyone does. That's what we are, equal, human, mm-hmm. you know. So um, how, how what was the neighborhood itself at the time of the crimes
0: you mean socioeconomically or yeah. preservation? Yeah. Yeah.
1: How well, was how was the community like? What kind of a community was it? Like, it, was it fairly active and there was a lot of people, lots of retail and activity going on, or was it kind of an up and coming? Or how do you? Yeah, do you
0: the know? thing is, old Louisville is an interesting part of the city. Uh, back in the 1880s, in the 1890s, that part of town was kind of outside the city limits. And there was a huge building boom. It was because of something called the Southern Exposition. It was kind of an early World's Fair before its time. And um, the city exploded because of the Southern Exposition. And so they kind of annexed that part of town and developed it as what many consider the first suburb. So it was the affluent place to live. So it's just full of beautiful mansions and grand Victorian homes. But the neighborhood's heyday uh, was kind of short-lived. By the time World War One rolled around, um, it was going into decline. And that was kind of happening all over, you know, the country. The Gilded Age had ended and uh people had to pay their income tax, so you know, big houses that took four, five, six live in servants to keep them running. They were prohibitively expensive. So by the twenties, uh, with the advent of the electric trolley system, which is really high developed and people could travel out to commuter neighborhoods. In the twenties they were already leaving and they were turning these places into uh, apartments and rooming houses and such. But the, the death knell probably came in the years after uh, World War Two. you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Where was everyone moving to? The suburbs, people that want to be in, you know, downtown neighborhoods. So by the 1970s, the neighborhood was pretty blighted. Um, probably 90% of the mansions were chopped up into uh, apartments and such. And uh, for a while, it was kind of seen as the Bohemian, you know, part of the city. There's a a famous corner nearby where I lived. They called it Fourth and Fellini back in the day. Um, It's actually Fourth and Oak. It's, you know, where you see a lot of colorful characters, but it's where you see the panhandlers and uh, uh, hustlers and and drug dealers and one-legged prostitutes. You never know what you're going to see there. (laughs) Um, The locals today just call it Fourth and Crazy because it has kind of a, a strange reputation, but so it was a lot of, um, you know, gays and artistic types living there back then already, as was often the case. And so they were really important in the preservation movement. And in um, the 1970s, they banded together because they were still tearing mansions down. And uh, they banded together and had the neighborhood saved. And from that point forward, you couldn't tear old buildings down in the neighborhood. And people slowly began moving back down uh, and reclaiming these houses and restoring them. There's been a great deal of revitalization. Today, probably more than half of them are back to single-family houses. The word's getting out. It's going to be the new Savannah, the new Charleston. And so people are often moving from more expensive parts of the country, you know, more expensive cities. They're selling their small houses back home. They come to old Louisville. And you can get a mansion, you know, an eight-bedroom mansion for under half a million dollars, $400,000, $450,000 easily, um, in good shape,
2: and not a fixer-upper. So, David... I was just going to say, the uh, you know, like the Rust Belt, even where I'm, I'm from Buffalo, and uh, there's a resurgence going on. Is uh, Louisville part of that resurgence? Is, is that what you're saying, too? Is it that connected, too? Well, this,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, older parts of town and older houses, you know, they're cool mm-hmm. now. People are looking for that kind of stuff. So um, there's still uh, problems in the neighborhood, but there's been a lot of revitalization. And it's a very diverse uh, part of the city, and a lot of people... Who moved to Oulu? They move there for that diversity. It's kind of a microcosm of the city itself. You know, racially, Louisville is about 60% uh, white, 40% black. The last I saw, the statistics are. Uh, we have very very rich people living there. Uh, it also has one of the poorest zip codes in the state. There, hmm. so you've got young people. The university forms uh, a boundary of the, the the neighborhood. You know, with 30,000 students. It's near downtown, so people live there to be close to their places of employment. So it's a little of everything, and that's why a lot of people uh, move there. You know, Louisville, uh, Kentucky is a very red state, but Louisville is a very blue area. so kind of a liberal oasis in, a, in a, a conservative state. And within the city itself, old Louisville is even more liberal, you know, than the rest of the I city. I got you.
1: So, so what do you think, when you're sitting through this, uh, like this took you a long time to put together all the information and the whole book, waiting for things to happen, getting the info and all that. Um, throughout that whole time, what was the biggest surprise about these two guys that you came across?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, you know, one of the reasons I let the story draw out as much as I could, aside from, you know, wanting to kind of present it as a memoir, you know, for a memoir, you have to have time to look back and reflect on things and, and comment on things. Um, the, the other thing was that uh, the main uh, accused, you know, the two guys on trial, Joey and Jeffrey, they never talked to me. So I kept trying to, you know, get in touch with them and trying to get their side of the story because I just didn't feel right, you know, writing, writing things down without getting, you know, something from their mouths to see what they thought about it. And so I, you know, I kept trying, and um, I'd come to dead ends. They'd say no, or they just wouldn't answer um, messages and things like that. And so one of the reasons it took so long is because I was always waiting a year or two to see if they finally answered the registered letter I sent, or answered the email, or the Facebook message I sent, or uh, on occasion, because Louisville's it's just. It's a city of about a million people when all, is, when all is said and done, but still a small town. So you run into everyone. So I'd run into the lawyers and stuff, and I'd say, is Jeffrey going to talk to me? No, he's not going to talk to me. Um, so I was just kind of waiting to get uh, you know, their responses. And for Jeffrey, I never did get a response. Um, so I never was able to talk to him and get his side of the story. Uh, for Joey, I did finally hear from him, and it was just two years ago. Um, someone who reads my books, they found his Tumblr account, and um, they sent me Joey's uh, kind of solicitation for pen pals in prison. And there was a uh, an email to contact him through JPay, which is like the prison PayPal uh, and uh, email system. And so I sent him, you know, an email saying, you know, I'm trying again. I, you know, I know it's got to be a, top, a difficult topic to talk about, but you know, I've got this book coming out, and I'd really like to get your point of view, get your two cents worth, and uh, seven, eight months went by, and then finally one day I got um, an email from him from the JPay system, and he said, oh, sorry, it took so long, you know, I've been in the hole for the last six months. He agreed <laughs> to talk to me, and um, we had some back and forth, but he wanted me to come see him in prison because that way they couldn't monitor our conversations, you know, over the phone and email and stuff, they could monitor things. Right, face to face they couldn't. So I agreed to meet him, and he's in a prison right outside of Louisville, so he's not far away at all. But um, we had a couple back and forth, and I, you know, I wanted to know more things, and um, I thought, I don't know, you know, I thought maybe I should wait to ask him this in person because the CIA connection was such a b- bizarre angle that popped up in this story. And uh, so we were getting ready to actually have a, a face-to-face meeting. And my last email, I said, so and, and what's this all about the CIA stuff? Is there any you know, truth to any of that? And uh, he never answered me after that. And we never did have a face-to-face meeting when I brought up the CIA stuff. Hmm. So yeah, so one of the most surprising things I think that came up is there are so many bizarre claims that nobody took seriously, but I discovered little nuggets of truth that maybe suggest there is some kind of connection there. And so that's kind of addressed in the book. Um, the other thing is because these were two separate trials, uh, they both agreed to testify against the other in exchange for death, the death sentence being you know dropped. Right. And so I was just amazed – Uh, And now I understand how jurors, you know, can make a decision sometimes because they're only presented with so much information. I was so surprised that the information that was revealed in the second trial that wasn't revealed during the first trial. And just courtroom wranglings and how things work. Uh, So I'll be less judgmental of juries in the future, Um, you know, when I see juries coming to decisions that we might not understand, you know, given the information we have at our Uh, disposal, but just seeing uh, two trials, basically the same case presented by the prosecution, but the defense uh, put on totally different defenses. And it was just fascinating to see that uh, disparity and the dichotomy between the two trials.
2: I thought that was fascinating. A connection again was, uh, but like more to the point with him is if he was bragging that he had killed 35 people that shows definitely a lack of remorse. (laughs) So you're dealing with a person like that, that that, uh, would be uh, very intriguing.
0: Now, was when Jeffrey was on the stand. Um, When that was brought up, he explained it away as it was one of their fantasies that they played out, a sexual fantasy, that he would be an assassin for the CIA, and that was kind of his come-on (laughs) line. But... Yeah, I mean, they were into role-playing and stuff, so it could very well be. But um, other things kept surfacing. And one of them is that there was a number of laptops that the CIA um, had in their possession that the defense, or um, yeah, the defense in the first trial was never able to get their hands on because supposedly they said they were off trying to be, um, you know, uh, broken into. They couldn't get into them. They were encrypted. And uh, at times, uh, it was alluded to that they were, you know, because they, they were trying to get postponements for a number of things, they were still waiting on translations to come back from the translators because it turns out Jeffrey, the one who was accused of working for the CIA, uh, who denied that he worked for the CIA, uh, it turns out he's a specialist in Eastern European languages, and he spoke German and Russian and uh Croatian or Slovenian or something. Exactly what the CIA wants. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so people, when it came out in the trial, people just kind of scoffed at it. They laughed. But then these other things would come up like that that made me think, well, you know, it kind of sounds like maybe he could have worked for the CIA. And the funny thing is, after... So uh, I'll give us a little spoiler. Uh, Jeffrey was acquitted of all but a couple minor charges. So he was not convicted of the murder. Uh, he was given only eight years for his part, which was tampering with evidence and, um, the drug stuff. But, so he was, I think he had been in prison, uh, six years at the time and he was sentenced to eight. So he got out on parole. And as soon as he got out, they arrested him and they took him up to Chicago for another trial. Because when they were arrested in Chicago with the counterfeit money, they were also arrested with uh, bags and bags of date rape drugs in addition to bomb-making supplies, guns, forged documents, and fake identities wow. because, they were, because they were planning a bank heist up there because Joey had been to prison before and had connections to organized crime in Chicago. Um, so they were supposed to have this trial about that stuff, like the, the forged um, documents and instruments. And so I went up to Chicago to try to sit in on that trial But when I called, nobody knew anything about the trial. I called all over Cook County trying to find out where this trial is. And it was only after one day a very helpful clerk, you know, she took an hour out of her time on the phone and helped me kind of chase this this trial down. And she said, you know, this is kind of weird. She said they keep changing the judge on this and they keep changing the date and the location. So she finally gave me um, the date of the trial and the location and I went there. I went to the Cook County um, courthouse and went in. I I found the courtroom where it was supposed to happen, but nothing happened. He wasn't there. Wow. So I have no idea what happened after that. I never uh, was able to find out what happened. So just another bizarre angle to all this. So is your book over a thousand word? I mean, pages. Wow. There's a lot of stuff going wow, on. like the It's 360. It pages. It was uh, about 125,000 words. Okay. yeah so I, I, I and I whittled off a lot. I mean, I really whittled down a lot of the the book. Oh, that must have been a difficult task, right there. Yeah. Well, and that's you know what editors are for. So my editor, she was great, and uh, I was really happy with my publisher because the framework is there. I mean, you know, a lot of publishers they want to they want to take out this section and that section, but Basically, the story I wrote is there. They just helped me, you know, they pointed out areas where I could condense things and kind of, you know, tighten up my language and stuff. So uh, the story I wrote is pretty much there, unchanged.
1: When you write something like this in a memoir style, following your kind of your feelings and and your ideas and what you think as you go through the book, um, does that kind of make you feel a little bit vulnerable by exposing some of your own personal yes. things. And and does that kind, yeah. kind of worry you with the social media climate nowadays?
0: Yeah. Um, but that's just how it is nowadays with social media. But I thought it was important to show a little vulnerability to get people on my side, to realize that I wasn't just trying to take something sensationalized and, you know, sensational and try to sensationalize it more. And so there are some personal moments when I reveal things that, you know, that bothered me or, um, about my own family, you know, that showed that I could sympathize with those being accused of something terrible. So I, yeah, I was worried about it, but I think for that memoir, I think that memoir approach, you need some vulnerability. You've got to kind of expose yourself and I hope that part pays off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so when someone uh, picks up the book, takes it home, reads it, um, what do you want them to take away from it?
0: Well, first off, um, I dedicate the book to Louisville, so I want them to see kind of what an interesting, what a great city Louisville is, and um, if they've never been here, I want them to come visit. And uh, so, people reading the book, and if you look at the acknowledgments, it's it's apparent I was inspired by John Barron's book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and so I even you know give him a shout out in the acknowledgments, but uh... i want people to want to come to the city and see the city for itself and discover it's great food scene and the interesting neighborhoods the quirky characters and uh... just uh... see a place they might not know anything about but then the other thing is just um... things happen and people do things why we do things that's kind of a mystery so through the whole writing of this book and the research, I just I couldn't really figure out, and it was really never explained, you know, why these guys supposedly killed their friend-slash-boyfriend, whatever you want to call him, drug dealer. Uh, that was so unclear why they killed him, you know, what the ulterior motive was. There are different motives thrown out there during the trials, but I just never really – accepted any of those. It didn't didn't make sense. So there were so many things that didn't make sense. And in the end, I was trying to figure out, you know, who really killed Jamie Carroll? Was it both of them as the prosecution argued? Uh, Was it just the one that was convicted of it and is in prison right now? Or did the other one get away with murder? You know, and uh, I still I still don't know what to believe. And so every time I go back and look at the trial tapes and I go back and I read the book, I have a different, you know, idea myself. I have a different opinion. I just can't make up my mind. So uh, I want people to understand things aren't always black and white. Um, people do things, what their motives are. We just don't know all the time. And, and sometimes we're not privy to everything, and we have to filter everything, you know, through that, through that knowledge that um, what we're seeing sometimes is incomplete, and we need to take that into consideration uh, before we judge people and talking to people being in chat rooms and stuff. It seemed like there's a lot of judgment in this story. And a lot of it was aimed towards, uh, Jamie Carroll, the victim, you know, he was a drug dealer and he did have a checkered past. He had problems, but, um, there were a lot of people affected by his death. He had a family who loved him. He had friends who are devastated by his loss. So, um, I want people to take away as well that there's real people in this story and, you know, hold off your judgment. You know, don't, don't be so quick to judge. You know, find out more um, and, and be open, you know, to what's going on out there.
1: Did you ever come to a resolution and decide why he was killed or is that sort of still up in the air? That's still up in the air.
0: Um, and, the, and the other big mystery is why the two guys had the fight that night. So the the defense argument in the second case is that Jeffrey Munt had had enough of living in fear of Joey these seven months and Joey had been torturing him and surveilling him and he just had enough and said he was going to call the police and then Joey went berserk and attacked him and threatened to kill him. Um, but then, you know, Joey supposedly told the guys about the body in the basement when the police came. So they're just, you know, he's the one that, you know, told them uh, what had happened. It just doesn't make sense. You know, why was he, why was he ratting him and his, you know, boyfriend out getting them in trouble? It just doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of things like that. And I haven't, I haven't been able to piece together what really happened that night.
2: Kind of reminds me of there's a case uh, I forgot the name, but but two brothers that they uh, they uh, were convinced by a woman to kill the ex husband, and one of the brothers uh, ratted out the other brother, saying that it was all him. And of course, uh, the end result was he was just doing that because he 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 did not want to get he did it, you know. So he was trying to rat out. He was lying. So I was, sounds uh, almost, maybe there's a, something similar to that.
0: Yeah, the police, they they intimated that he had said that because he just, he, he figured that if he gave them that information that they would just let him go and that would be that. So that came in there as well. But, yeah, there's just so many unexplained angles to this story. And like I said, every time I go back and look at it, I discover something different. And so every time I come to a different conclusion.
1: Hmm. How were the police toward them, being um, that it was kind of a gay-centered crime? Um, well, uh, you know,
0: a lot of it was cliche stuff. You know, you guys in the gay community, you like your drugs and stuff like that. And uh, for the most part, though, when I saw the interviews that the police conducted with both of them, it seemed like they... Uh, treated them with respect, and um, yeah, there was one time where they did the good cop, bad cop kind of thing, but um, they seemed empathetic to the two. But this is another thing: um, the night that nine one one was called, it just so happened that a camera crew from A and E was in town, and they were here from the first forty eight. They filmed all of this. So it's one of several true crime shows that have done this story now. So as the police were interrogating the two guys, there were uh, cameras on them. And this was one of the defense issues they brought up several times is that the police were kind of starstruck knowing the camera crew was there and they were acting exceptionally solicitous, you know, to the to the guys they were questioning and that they were making mistakes, you know, not being as thorough as they should have been. Um, yeah, so, <laughs>
1: so just totally bizarre. Yeah, well, and that probably would have, I, yeah. you know, because I still don't know how someone can do their job if they're being filmed on a regular basis over something and, and not... You're not have... going to act like you normally do. Right,
0: right. In some professions that's a good thing, you know. But, um, yeah, so that was brought up uh, a number of times during the trials.
1: Hmm. So uh, how is that community now? How How is it, it – does it still live with that? Does it still hold on to that murder and those guys in the house and all that? Or do they – has it moved on?
0: Well, I mean, the book's coming out as we speak. So there's a lot of buzz in the city. And uh, most people seem to embrace it, you know. I think the book will kind of put some closure to the friction that there's been, and even in the community, even in the neighborhood and the gay community, there's so many angles that people don't know. There's a lot of misperceptions uh, and misconceptions of what went on. So hopefully, the book will kind of clarify things. But um, a lot of uh, a lot of the people down there, you know, these are my former neighbors and stuff and friends and people I'm on boards with and in neighborhood organizations. Uh, some of them they're kind of hesitant about what the book's going to do but most of them they're excited
1: about it hmm. so um, now after being through such an ordeal and such a, a long haul to get this book out what are you going to do next are you going to jump back into true crime or are you going to go back to haunted or what it, what do you think is next for you well
0: I've got several fiction projects in the work uh, works and so my uh, my plan is to get... My agent is actually shopping one of them around now. So one of them is to kind of revise that, and then get the other ones uh, completed that I've been working on. Things that I kind of put on the back burner to try to get this true crime book done.
1: Okay, hey, for you, what what is the biggest difference from writing fiction to nonfiction?
0: For me, there's just a lot more freedom writing nonfiction. You know, because it's you can make up so much, and that's what it is. You, um, you mean fiction, or not? Yeah. uh, All right. Yeah. Fiction. You can bake up nonfiction. There's so much research and um, um, verification and, and, and sourcing and things like that. So yeah, fiction is, it's kind of a relief just to sit down. You don't, you know, theoretically you don't need much to write fiction except what's up in your head and you can sit down and just create and you're creating your own world, your own characters and might be inspired by other things, but, Whenever I write nonfiction, it's half the time I'm looking things up and reading things to find out about other things and verifying sources and things like that. So um, I like fiction because I can just take my, my laptop and sit someplace and, and write about it, write what
2: I want to write. Question about that, then. Um, I, I think in my case, and I think else too, but my, my case is that uh, I get a lot more attention because of the nonfiction side, so that kind of forces my hand a little bit, um, and that's not the case with you? Do you is it both? Well, see, I haven't really published
0: anything other than like short stories and such. so I'm known primarily as a nonfiction writer, so they expect nonfiction from me. okay uh, But I think you know nonfiction's so hot, you know people, especially true crime and things like that, because people they they like finding out more about things they know something about. Okay, and people like getting the backstory and, and you know finding out more um, tantalizing details and things like that. So I think that's one of the reasons nonfiction is so popular.
1: Yeah. Did you have to do anything I think, really, really wild or seedy to find out something? Come on, tell us the truth. Andy, <laughs>
0: <laughs> remember I, how I told you about the thriving S and M scene? Yeah. There so one of my last chapters in the book. There was a character in the book and. Um, it was, um, her, put it this way, her name's Candy and, but that was her name when she wore her wife's clothes that night when she went out and roamed the neighborhood and she knew a lot about the local S and M scene. And she had been trying to get me to go to this one S and M scene in S and M club in the neighborhood. And so I wasn't planning on it, but I got, um, I got a kind of um, enigmatic text one night. If you want to find out more about Jamie Carroll, come to this address. And I went to the address, and it was the SM Club she had been telling me about. Oh, yeah. Well, the S&M, cl- the SM Club was a three-story old Victorian house. Uh, and you had to start in the basement and then work your way up the servants stairs to the third floor and work your way down through different chambers to get out. So that was quite an education.
1: <laughs> uh, so did, did they have you tied up and beat? No, nope. oh. no, nope.
0: they, they, they were fine with me, you know. Actually, I was, I was kind of in a hurry, so I wasn't really engaging anyone as I, <laughs> I went by. I was just trying to get through each room and, and get back to the door that led me outside.
2: The, uh,
1: you, you might have come across Mike there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, speak, uh, well, I'm the, the Victorian home because I researched the Victorian era. And so it sounds like you you have a, a tremendous interest in that. Is that where you're going to lead your fiction? Is to the Victorian side, or? Well, uh, I've
0: got a historical kind of detective piece that's set in the in the 1880s in Louisville. I've also got um, a collection of interlinked stories uh, set in the 1880s here as well. Uh, kind of each each Victorian set story kind of has a macabre theme to it. Mm-hmm it's called, um, eating matches. And, um, I'm always, you know, going through the old newspapers and stuff. And it's so nice now that, you know, everything's online. You can find so many, you know, archived old newspapers and stuff. But I, when I did my research, you know, years ago, like 15, 20 years ago, now I was starting all this, I would just go to the library and find, you know, uh, a month's newspapers online from one year, and I just go through them, and I'd be captivated. Well, one day I was reading, and uh, there was a short little article about Miss So and So of Second Street, distressed over her abandonment by her lover, consumed a box of matches, and she is gravely ill. She is on her deathbed, hmm. and they do not—they uh, do not expect her to live much more. It will be a painful, painful death, hmm. and that intrigued me. And um, and it, it turned out, that later on, I found out that that was not an uncommon way for Victorian women to kill themselves, uh, eating a box of matches. So this, uh, this thing I'm working on, um, eating matches, it's different households throughout the city during a given week, each day picking up the newspaper and kind of reading about this, and then they have something macabre going on in their own lives. And uh, so it's kind of... It's kind of spooky and Victorian, but I like that kind of. Well, stuff. Well,
2: what's interesting is the uh, the nonfiction, the suspect Jack Ripper suspect. the researched Francis Tumblety, uh, Scotland yeah. Yard actually investigated him uh, in Cincinnati, so he he had had an office in Cincinnati, and so uh, that probably got he was probably uh, close to Louisville too, so. Yeah, that's just right up the river. That's not far away at all. Right, and then he—that's where he—he he would be in New Orleans, and he would take the boat too. Uh-huh. And he uh, had uh, sunk one of his boats around the Louisville. So, uh, if you see anything about Francis Tumbler, uh, then I have to look that up. I didn't know about that. I, I listened
0: to the last uh, episode. I heard all that stuff, but I didn't know that detail. I have to well, I,
2: include that. I have a lot of stuff I haven't published yet. So that's, uh, that's oh, some of wow. the good stuff right there. <laughs> oh, that's good to
0: know. That's good to know. And, and also kind of if there's,
2: uh, any, uh, any unknown, uh, women that were murdered, that's, uh, there's a few connections there. So it's, it's really exciting. Okay.
0: <laughs> Ooh, <I laughs> Just let you know, David. To, uh,
2: yeah. Each, it was 1885. What was the year? Oh, Jack it, the Ripper did. 1888. Uh, but Tumbley was, his, his office was, uh, in like the 1860s, 1870s, but he, he was ubiquitous. He, he would always go yeah. back to those places. So, uh, okay. but so Scotland Yard, there was something going on in Cincinnati. that's why Scotland Yard went there. so uh, uh-huh but, so it's, it, that's what I want to try to dig out. Why was Scotland Yard interested in that area? Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: I'll put that on my list. if I find anything in my research, I'll let you know. All right. <laughs> see,
2: Alice is great. Uh,
1: see? Yeah. Help helping the silver fox. Right? <laughs> That's so right. Not just with not just with finding his s and Yeah.
2: <laughs> what was the what was that address again?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Funny thing is now that house it's been restored and it's a beautiful, beautiful Italian brick house. But yeah, I the, the homeowners, <laughs> they kinda know about the past of the place and they asked me not to include the address, so I don't
1: mention it. <laughs> Yeah, are, Oh, I wonder if they hear the ghosts of the whip, yeah, going on. And uh, oh boy, it could be fun. Well, then, the, uh, yeah.
2: David, is that part of your? Uh, you do uh, tours. So is that part of your tour now? Uh,
0: um, not the not the S and M club, but the um, <laughs> place where the Jamie Carroll murder t- took place, fourteen thirty five South Fourth Street. It's one of the most popular stops on our evening haunted history uh, walk. Oh, really? Yeah, we do the tour seven nights a week, uh, March through November, so it's that busy time of year. Uh, I love people come from all over the country, and they come from foreign countries as well to check out Louisville. I love showing the neighborhood off. That's um, great.
1: Now, um, speaking of that, um, how do people find you? Do you have a website? Do you have um, Facebook? Yeah, you my like- uh,
0: website, Uh You can go to my tour uh Site, which is LouisvilleHistoricTours dot com. Uh, both of those ways are probably the easiest way to get in touch with me.
1: And we'll have that uh, up on our website as well, so it's all all there, you know. And um, now I just wonder, um, you you must have been writing part of this, the last part, and editing through COVID times. Um, how was that on your writing? Well, it actually gave me the time I needed
0: yeah. uh, because. You know, I teach at the university, but, um, you know, most of it was online, so I'd go online and do my online teaching and stuff. Uh, For a big chunk of the pandemic, the tours were suspended, so it was just online teaching when I had to, and then writing, and uh, I had, yeah, you know, uh, the pandemic has kind of slowed things down in the publishing world, so... Things were kind of lagging there for a bit, but then last fall, uh, last summer, I really had to kind of get it into gear and get things finished. So it, uh, it gave me hours of time, which I needed to get the book done. So
1: uh, Yeah, but, you know, when something stressful and, and, and kind of weird going on around you, outside your door, does that sort of, do you think it influences your writing? Makes it darker. Yeah, it can, but in this case, you know, I work very well
0: under stress and under a deadline. So I had my deadline and I I had to get things done. And, you know, by then the story had taken form. I knew I wasn't going to be able to talk to both of the guys and I just gave up. And, you know, I just decided to include that as part of, you know, the story. Um, So I don't know if anything, it just gave me more time to reflect and put things in perspective. Right.
1: Deadline, no pun intended there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is very, very interesting, and we're glad you made the time to come on the show.
0: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah. Now, the book we're focusing on is A Dark Room in Glitterball City, and uh, the guest has been the author, David Nominee. Thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Great to speak with you, David tired of
2: wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website
0: and look for the Martino Movie Reviews.
2: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com The mission
1: has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see
2: you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This
0: has been a
1: production of Something Wave Media.